Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. The last quarter of the 20th century was a golden age of horror novels. Leading the pack, of course, was Stephen King. But there was also Peter Straub, Anne Rice, Dean Koontz, and several others. One of the leading authors of the period was Clive Barker, who burst onto the scene in his early 30s with the Books of Blood, followed by novels and short stories specializing in horror and dark fantasy. He was also the writer and director of what is now a classic in the field of movie horror, Hellraiser, and its villains Pinhead and the Cenobites. The Probabilities crew, Richard Lupoff, Lawrence Davidson, and myself, we interviewed Clive Barker three times, first in 1987, then a year later, and finally in 1996. This interview, recorded in September 1987, took place in the KPFA studios while he was on tour for his fantasy novel, Weave World. Your basic focus seems to be on horror. Mm -hmm. Why? My basic focus has been on horror until Weave World, which I don't define as a horror novel at all. But yes, I think that's exactly right. The, the horror genre generally offers far more possibilities than its detractors allow. It allows you to talk about death, insanity, sexual obsession, the failure of uh, uh, social systems, all kinds of stuff. Uh, the destruction of the nuclear family, uh, you can subvert the status quo on a page-by-page -page basis, all the kind of stuff that really turns me on, in other words. And you can do that in a format which is very accessible, and people will pick up at their supermarket or at their uh, airport or at their bookstore and maybe not even realize the subtext. But it is there. It's part of the texture of, 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 what's, of what's being presented. I like that sense that the thing can work on several levels. And I also like, in a curious kind of way, and this is perverse perhaps, that because it's critically, if not ignored, certainly looked down upon, you can just get on with having the relationship which is really important, that is the relationship with the reader. I don't write for critics. It wouldn't be worth it anyway, because most critics would tend to ignore this kind of fiction. In some ways, being ignored by critics is a sacred condition. It means that no sense that you're trying to appeal to a bunch of uh, individuals whose criteria you may not even share. My first and indeed only responsibility is to uh, the people who will put down the 18 bucks to buy Weave World. They're the people who I'm writing for. That's my, that's the, the essential relationship between the writer and his audience. In um, Books of Blood, what you, and in, uh, in Damnation Game, and I guess also to some degree in Weave World, you uh, use a lot of imagery that seems religious in nature, but it isn't really because you're 
not really sticking with traditional mythologies. Uh, is right. that deliberate? Yeah, there's a great quote from one of my heroes, William Blake. He, Blake, of course, a, a, a Christian in a kind of way, <laughs> but he had a great quote. He, he said that we both, speaking of somebody who we didn't like, who was also a Christian, with whom he was, you know, great enemies. He said, we both read the Bible day and night, but he reads black where I read white. In other words, these mythologies are open to great richness of interpretation. And one of the very interesting things for me historically about the way particularly that the Catholic Church used the mythologies of the pagan systems, I use the word pagan uh, without any pejorative associated with it whatsoever, pagan systems that took over, was the way it simply sort of used this imagery and took it to itself, you know, it invented the notion of the virgin birth somewhere around the 13th century because that kind of suited. It celebrates Christ's birthday in the middle of December, the way the Dionysus, about the time the Dionysus was celebrated. Dionysus, of course, also died in the tree and rose after three days. I mean, yes, this imagery is not the sole possession of a religious system which our culture has been shaped by. The imagery belongs maybe in a very Jungian sense to our collective unconscious. And if we can use that and re-liberate it the way that I think Blake was trying to do, Blake was trying to re-liberate the imagery of the Christian church, say, look, this stuff is valid and important, it's just that it's been corrupted out of all uh, recognition. I'm going to put it back into your collective unconscious. And in fact, one of the ways he did it, which I think is very, uh, very much paralleled with, with the fictional forms which I use, is that he relocated it in the world, his own world. In the prophetic books, very often he's talking about the London that he lived in. And that London is occupied by uh, demons and angels and he's walking on Peckham Rye as a child and he sees a tree full of angels. It's the place where he was going out for a walk with his parents, but it also happens to be occupied by angels. You know, even in, even in Jerusalem, you know, until we had built Jerusalem in this green and pleasant land, the whole point is actually building it where you live, having the metaphysics live side by side with you. Now, the imagery of the Christian church is in some ways immensely potent because it's charged up, as I say, with uh, imagery and ideas which belong to the ages, don't just belong to the Christian church, they belong to our subconscious, to our collective unconscious. I want to have those images back, I want access to those images mm -hmm. without feeling that they, they don't just belong to Jerry Fowler, you know? <laughs> How did you get those images? Were they pounded into you as a child? They absolutely weren't, no. I mean, I was never taken to church as a kid. The family joke is I went in to be baptized, the font water boiled. I don't have a, a religious upbringing, I don't have a religious mm -hmm. education. I'm self-educated in that imagery because it fascinates me and because I, I find it immensely potent. I find it potent, uh, as I say, not, I think, because I believe that this is the one and only way to salvation. I'm not a proselytizer on behalf of the Christian church, but this kind of imagery is the stuff of our culture. It's not the only stuff of our culture. Mm -hmm. Mickey Mouse and Elvis Presley are also the stuff of our culture. But the collision between the, the, the metaphysical and the sublime and the rich and the ripe and the pap that we see on television, yes. for instance, is, I think, a very rich and interesting collision. Oh, I, I agree. Uh, in fact, some years ago, there was a marvelous poster of 
Mickey Mouse crucified. I wonder if you saw that. No, I never did. No, okay, that's cool. And that whole sense that we are that we should be able to use Blake would have understood that. I think Blake probably would have made Mickey Mouse into you know a lower order of demon. There's a, a an interesting juxtaposition of of images that I've noticed in in a number of your works, particularly in in the film Hellraiser and in the Damnation Game, the right. novel, your first novel. Right. Sexual imagery on the one hand. Uh, some of which I have to compliment you on. I enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> but but um, juxtaposed repeatedly with images of, of violence, morbidity, and gore. Would you would you just address your your yes. reasoning for that? I think there are three parts to the answer. Okay, one, one the first part is that I I reject utterly the have sex and die kind of picture. You know, that collision of sex and death is not interesting, not at all sort of intellectually or, or artistically rewarding. The second is the kind that is addressed by Cronenberg in a lot of his pictures, where you have diseases exchanged with a kiss, for instance, and they came from within or shivers. There's a kind of body disgust built into a lot mm -hmm. of Cronenberg pictures, a perfectly legitimate worldview, not one that I particularly share. The third is the confusion that I believe we have about our bodies and response to our bodies, which can be addressed in this kind of fiction. The same nerve endings which make a touch from the beloved the best thing in life are also the nerve endings which will give us great agony if, you know, having got out of bed, we stub our toe. There is an ambiguity in the way that our bodies are built. That is, and we learn this as children, Very, we learn this very early on, probably in a pre-sexual certainly in a pre-sexual condition, we learn that our bodies are uh, ambiguous in what they can provide us with. Later on, we learn something, something else that we are built into, locked into, a decaying machine. And we learn this from the age of 18 onwards. One of the uh, horrors, I guess, of being an athlete is that really you start to run down probably by 30, you know, probably by 25. So there's an ambiguity there too. Here we have our minds, which are, which can fantasize, which can uh, imagine all kinds of possibilities inside a body which is uh, increasingly not responding to those yeah. possibilities. Cocteau says, "You look into the mirror, you see death." I mean, you know, you look into the mirror, you, you you see that happening. There's a bunch of observations which I will now attempt to tie together. So the next point is the whole collision, if you like, of the sexual and indeed the erotic and the the death imagery, the uh, the violence imagery. It seems to me that very often when, when horror fiction addresses death, as it often does, it is covertly also addressing sexuality. And I emphasize covertly because it's not very upfront about it for the most part. But it's there, but it's buried. I mean, how many horror movies do you know in which girls are carried off by the monster? You, you know, this is like very simple, on a very simple level. But what what is King Kong doing holding on to Fay Ray? You know? Well, I always wondered about that. You didn't wonder for a moment. You know very well. <laughs> well, I wondered about the mechanics. <laughs> well, the mechanics, the me yeah. He said to sniffing. So I think that's exactly right. I mean, that was, that's a, a legitimate area of erotic endeavor. Really? Sniffing is safe sex, right? So, where were we? I was having such fun thinking of curve. Oh, yeah. So, when we're talking about the life of the body in the, in the sort of death context, in the violence context, in the corruption context, I think very often we're also talking about 
sexual feelings. So often sex is about obsession. Often horror fiction is about obsession. So often sex is about coming to terms with feelings that you're almost out of control of. In fact, may be completely out of control of. Horror fiction is very often about mm. having control or losing control. There, sex is always about the body. Horror fiction is over and over and over again about the body. The French, you know, have the term petit mort uh, for, you know, for the, the post-orgasmic blues. The French have a point. Uh, you know, there's a kind of sense that in the, the moments of love, anything is possible. And then the moments after, nothing is. And that's like a, like a slap in the face. You know, you get, you, you get a sense of, I own the world. I don't, I own nothing. Those, all those collisions, all those collisions of views of the flesh, the flesh celebrated, the flesh uh, flagellated, seem to me to be interesting ambiguities, interesting paradoxes, and something that I just go back and back and back to. Did you start writing Books of Blood when you were in puberty? No, I didn't. It's a good question. No, I didn't. I probably started thinking about them when <laughs> I was in puberty. No, I started writing when I, get, when I was about 28, 29. So it was way, way down the line by that point. Had you planned on being a writer before then? then or? I, was, I was writing plays and I was painting. That, that, that was what I was doing. And then I turned to, to all this relatively late. I mean, I, I got published, uh, I guess, when I was 30. So uh, it's, uh, well, more than that, I was 35 on Monday, so uh, 31 and a half. <laughs> I was published three and a half years ago. Uh, that means you wrote Books of Blood in a very, very short amount of time. That's right. That's right. Volumes. Yeah. Yes, I mean, I look back on it in a very short amount of time. A lot of the stories, a lot of the ideas have been around in some form or other. There's a story called In the Hills, the Cities, for instance, which is a uh, story about two towns that turned to giants, which had been around for a, uh, a while. It was a story that I'd wanted to make sense of in some form or other, and this was the opportunity. A lot of people I see in the bookstores, they open up Books of Blood, and they look at the copyright page, and they come over and they keep asking, so where were these stories published before they became a book? Right. And the answer is they weren't. Right. They were conceived as 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 they were not quite as they exist. Originally, I wanted one fat volume. I wanted the first three books of blood to be one single volume. I'd read Dark Forces, Kirby Macaulay's anthology of horror fiction, which I thought was tremendous. I still think it is a tremendous anthology. And pretty much the equivalent, I think this was Kirby's intention of d Dangerous Visions, what Dangerous Visions uh, mm -hmm. is for science fiction, uh, Dark Forces is for horror fiction. And I'd read that, and it was a revelation. You know, here was Joyce Carol Oates and Isaac Singer and Stephen King and Ramsey Campbell and people with Ray Bradbury, people with completely different worldviews, completely different social and political points of view, completely different kinds of imagination, all gathered, you know, between the same pages, all writing something which I suppose would generically be described as horror fiction, though I have real problems with this kind of terminology. I think it's probably as misleading as, as it is useful. But let's assume that these were all mm -hmm. horror stories. And I looked at this stuff and I thought, boy, you know, you can you can do a lot of stuff with this kind of fiction. And then this thoroughly arrogant notion occurred to me. I thought, wouldn't it be great to, for me to do all of these? I'll do some comical stuff and I'll do some sexy stuff and I'll do some visceral stuff and I'll do some, you know, uh, uh, subtle stuff. And I'll do some weird stuff and so on. And I'll put them all together in a book. And 
nobody had told me at that point because I didn't know that nobody bought short stories. <laughs> nobody actually buys that stuff. And I then went to my, my theater agent with this stuff and he said, well, you know, the real problem with this guy is that uh, I'd only had, I only had five of them at that point. You know, nobody buys this stuff. I mean, short stories are really difficult to sell. And I had written these, these first five in a state of blissful ignorance, mm -hmm. which is actually quite useful because I'd gone on, I'd just done it. To prefer be a bumblebee. Absolutely. Sure. And it was great. I, it was done. So, well, five of them were done. And I took them into, he took them to Garland's, were deeply disgusted, and said that they, they were, these were outrageous and disgusting, and they would have nothing to do with them, and, you know, zombies were involved in sexual acts, and it was just not cool. So, they then took them to, then took them to Sphere, and Sphere set up a lunch, and Sphere said, we love these five stories, we'll publish everything you've got. And I said, guys, that's all I've got, for only five stories. And they said, well, write some more. So I wrote, I guess, another ten, and they became the first three books of blood. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it was really, I mean, I was walking into walls right, left, and center. I mean, I knew nothing about this stuff. It was yeah. just fun. Who was your editor at Sphere? A lovely lady called Barbara Boot was great because she never said no. I mean, she, she actually, that's not quite true. She said no to Win the Hills, the Cities, which is very interesting because later on it won the British Fantasy Award, and she was at the the um you know the 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 award ceremony as was my agent who would also say that I should never publish this story it's very gratifying you know when you know you make your little speech to to having received the award i actually said you know there were two people in the room in this room and i'm not going to name them who told me i should never publish this story just i think it's important that one always remember that however useful agents and editors are and of course they're useful finally your imagination knows best that's the story that had the big impression on me. The one thing I noticed about it is it broke the rules. I mean, you had two characters who were carrying on one plot, and then you've got the horror plot, and they come together at the end, but it's almost accidental, accidental. that they come together. Yeah. yeah, it also has two gay characters in who had had up until that time. I mean, there are actually very few gay characters in, in, in horror fiction. There's very little sex in horror fiction, yeah. gay, straight, or any other way. So, I, I, yeah, rules are to be broken, right? And if you can't break them in the horror genre, where can you break them? If you can't break them in the fantastique, where can't you break mm -hmm. them? You know, it, it doesn't seem just that we should break them. It's actually our duty to break them. There are a lot of references to science fiction in your works. Hellraiser, in fact, yeah. if you look at it from a technical viewpoint, is a science fiction story, although the whole treatment and attitude it's is a horror, is, a horror yeah. story. Yeah, I agree. And, and similarly, in the novel Damnation Game, I, yeah. I noticed one of your characters has a library of science fiction paperbacks to which he turns for solace when he's feeling absolutely, depressed. Absolutely, absolutely. Would you talk about that and particularly mention any authors that you feel are influential. Okay, let's just backtrack to something sure. I mentioned a little while ago about my irritation about the terminology that's associated yes. with these things. I use the term fantastique to cover science fiction, horror fiction, fantasy fiction, and, you know, there are subsections within fantasy fiction. Now, we've all been to conventions, and we know there is great factionalizing that goes on at the convention. Yes. You get a horror reader who says he will never read science fiction. You get a sword and sorcery fan who says that he never reads horror, and so on and so forth. This seems to be to be a nonsense. Finally, we're all writing literature of the imagination. In one very real sense, anything that I write has a fantastical element in the sense because I've only ever written one short story which didn't have a supernatural element in it mm -hmm. somewhere. 
in another sense, when you're dealing with interdimensional beings as I am in several pieces of fiction, or indeed puzzles, which I am in several pieces of fiction, you're dealing in science fiction kind of territories. Now, I had a, a very, to my mind, very instructive exchange with somebody in London. I was invited to, to address a class, a science fiction class. And going back to the story of the Hills of Cities, in fact, the guy said, oh, this is a really great story, but I'm a science fiction fan, and I'm afraid it doesn't work for me. And I said, well, why? He said, well, see, it doesn't make sense. I mean, you couldn't actually do that. Uh, you couldn't actually get 10,000 people and tie them together and make them into one great big giant. I mean, it wouldn't work. They'd have fall over. <laughs> so I said, yeah. <laughs> okay. uh, so uh, what, what's the problem with that? I mean, I, you know, I'm not, you know, this isn't the social plan I'm operating here. This is, <laughs> this is, this is a, a fantastical short story. And he said, but you know, the thing is, you could have solved the problem for me with one sentence. And I said, well, what's the sentence? Tell me the sentence. He said, well, you could have told me that bringing all these people together, tying them all together, kind of generated a force field which preserved the homogeny of this, of this, of this, of this, of this, and that would have made it work for me. And I said, well, does that, do you believe such a force field exists? <laughs> and he said, well, no. And I said, <laughs> okay, so what you're asking, if I understand you correctly, is for a perfectly spurious explanation to be given for this in order that you can accept the story. And he said, quite seriously, oh, yes, yes, that's what I want. And I thought, that's really interesting, because that's the difference between a science fiction fan and me. Because I couldn't care less about giving artificial explanations. What's important to me is to get it psychologically true, is to get it right on a dream level, is to get it right on a subconscious level, is to get it right on a Jungian level. You get it right on that level, and inventing the names of machines, which will make all of this plausible, becomes academic. In fact, it almost begins to condescend to the reader, because what it implies to, to me, anyway, is that the reader doesn't have the imagination or the breadth to actually say, this idea makes sense to me, I embrace this idea, I do not need you to invent something from Doctor Who to make this work. That's comic strip thinking, to my mind. Well, I, I think that's a wonderful point, that this person you were, you were conversing with was approaching it on, on a very literalistic, um, sure. mechanistic kind of level, you were approaching it on a psychological, emotional level, right? and you were just on different tracks. We were just absolutely on different tracks, and it disturbed me in a way, because I want to write stuff which, uh, in the future, I want to write stuff which will probably be called science fiction, but I don't want to write uh, mechanistic science fiction, because unless you can actually bring, as I can't, because I don't have the training, fresh insights or or maybe uh, explorations to existing mechanisms. You have to invent the mechanisms. And I don't want to invent mechanisms. It's, it's not useful to do so. I mean, it was kind of interesting when I was naming the characters in Weave World, because I have a, a lot of genre, I have problems with pure genre forms of any kind. You know, when they get to the point where they, where they become the kind of book which the mainstream reader couldn't even approach, you know, the the uh, the Masonic ritual form of fiction. You know, <laughs> you need the secret handshake to get in. 
have a problem with the kind of fantasy which presents you with chronologies and maps and uh, elaborate appendices, and in fact they're almost as important, if not more important, than the fiction itself. And I discovered when I started to write Weave World that I actually had in problems with the idea of invented names as well. And I'd never realized that I had that problem before. And the reason I had the problem with the names was because it was totally arbitrary. I, what I did was, as I started to invent the tribes of the book and so on, I wrote out probably, probably thousands of names, just writing stuff out. You know, names that sounds, basically. And I hated every single damn one of them, <laughs> because it was just arbitrary. You know, you could fling them all up in the air, and they could all come down. And the other thing was, they all began to sound like comic strip names. You know, they all began to sound like things that you had heard somewhere before, yes. and you couldn't think quite were. So eventually I decided to actually use root words in some way or other, to actually go back and research Either when I had to invent a name, and there are actually only four invented names mm -hmm. in, in the in the entire book, which are the names of the four tribes, I tried to find words which made some kind of genuine sense. Short words, the yeme, the aya, the lo, and so on. I mean, r simple, simple words, yeah. simple, clean words. Seems to me what you were doing there was abandoning the notion of arbitrariness. And if there was not a pre-existing system you could use, you were, in effect, inventing a system. Absolutely. And and the, the, the problem is, with the invented system, is uh, that it becomes the reason to do the thing in, it, in, in itself. And there are invented system books out there which become, the system becomes the raison d'etre. I think that's very dangerous. You think this is, this is a heritage of Tolkien, that he's got this... Just whole army of people trying to recreate I'm Lord afraid of the Rings. That, I'm afraid that man may have more to answer for than we, we suspect. <laughs> I mean, I'm a great, great fan, but I mean, I do think that particularly the later, you know, by the time the Silmarillion comes out, yes. it's is like people are actually. I mean, forget the story, guys. Mm -hmm. What we want is where did the language come from and where does the accent go? But, you know, but that's where it started. I mean, it started with the language. It didn't start with the story. That that's right, and it's, it 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 starts with his sense of what a mythology is. You see, I I have a another problem with Tolkien, which is the fact that I don't think you come out of his books addressing the problems of the world. Uh, for instance, uh, there's almost a total absence of useful or interesting female characters in mm -hmm. Tolkien. That actually has found its way through an awful lot of other fantasy fiction. You know, I think that fantasy fiction remains the last refuge of the chauvinist. I mean, you can do you can do stuff to women in fantasy fiction that you could not do in an awful lot of other kinds of fiction. You can put them in low cut. You can do what Jabba the Hutt did to Princess Leia and, and that's still cool. You know, I mean, you can just basically treat them like sex objects. I mean, how many sword and sorcery books can you find with girls in supine positions with very, very low-cut low uh, gear on who are basically sex interests. That's all they are. They're bimbos. They are intergalactic bimbos, you know? <laughs> and uh, why? It's time, to, it's, time to, it's time to get out of that. We, should be, we don't have a chance of getting out of the ghettoized thinking unless we address the fact that, these, that this kind of fiction should be for a mainstream audience that has expectation, legitimate expectation. And one of those expectations is that 50% of the world, the female half, should be represented as human beings. 
And in Weave World, the most interesting villain and the most interesting hero are both women. Yes, and in Hellraiser, I tried to do exactly the same thing. I've actually come in for a lot of flack there, interestingly. A number of women said to me, you know, I think it's terrible, you know, there's a, there's a villainess in this. And I, I said, why? I mean, Freddy Krueger, Jason, Michael, you know, <laughs> Leatherface, isn't it about time the distaff side had a chance here? You know? And Julia does it with motives. It's not like she's like a simple-minded character. Immaculata, again, in, uh, in Weave World and Susanna are both immensely powerful people who change utterly the course of the plot and it's, in some places are actually in charge of the plot. And I like that. I, I, I celebrate the possibility that you can write about 100% of humanity. I want to ask how you got involved in movies. I got in movies because I had two screenplays massacred. A movie called Rawhead Rex, a movie called Underworld. Both of them turned into really terrible movies by people who didn't really care to make good movies. And I thought, well, there's, there's only a certain number of ways that you can go on this. I can do what I think Bradbury has done, which is he's tried his damnedest to get good movies made, and they, for the most part, have not worked. Or you can take the money and run, which is another approach. The third approach was to actually see whether I could do it myself, a limited budget, and see whether it works, and that way maybe build up to having some kind of presence in L.A. and you know having some kind of authority to make other movies. When you started, had you any idea of how to make a movie? Not the slightest clue. <laughs> it was like appearing on set the first time and saying, now which of these static objects is the camera? I'd had a moment of crisis the week before when I wondered whether I should actually go out and buy a how-to-direct book. and Because they do exist, there are these kind of... And I thought... What, this is this is kind of this is an interesting one. If I decide to do this, I'm basically confessing to myself that I don't have a clue how to do this. Or if I don't buy it, I am assuming that somehow or other my gut instincts will get me through. I think I got better at it. I mean, I'd be disappointed if I didn't. But I mean, I think I, I think, you know, we filmed in chronological order, uh, roughly speaking. I think the first 20 minutes of the picture are the weakest 20 minutes. I think it gets better. I gradually got a grasp of how to make this work. But, I mean, I was learning on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. What's the connection between that experience and your prior work as a playwright? Lots. I mean, I directed for the theater, so I had a sense of dealing with actors, you know, the way the rapport should work in principle. I think, given the scale of the budget and the time that we had, the movie contains a number of very nice performances, better performances than one would often see in a stalk and slash picture or whatever else, where the performances tend to be very functional at best. I think what Claire Higgins does as Julia, for instance, is real nice and, and elegantly um, structured and paced. No, she's the stepmother. She's the stepmother, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think she I think she does what she does, you know, kind of well, she, and she goes for it. The other training I brought to there was the illustration stuff, which is what I you know, originally started out with. So the Cenobite drawings, all that kind of thing, I, I was able to take the, the drawings to the special effects people and say, look, this is the way I want this guy to look. You're going to have pins sticking out of his face. And they were very responsive to that. Did those images come at all from Hodorowski? Have you never seen a Hodorowski movie? A Hodorowski? I guess not. No. El Topo. El Topo. El Topo. Oh, oh I'm sorry. Yes, I have. El Topo I saw 
woo, 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 way back. <laughs> How long ago is that? 1969 or something? Around yeah. 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 I've never seen... Is it the White Mountain? Or? Holy Mountain. The Holy Mountain. No, I've never seen that. Oh. Though, didn't he also write some Mobius stuff for a comic strip? He also was working on one of the earlier Dune. versions of Dune. That's yeah. right. That's Absolutely. never happened. The whole thing about this influence thing is real interesting for me because many times painting and paintings and illustrations will be as potent an influence as writing Joel Peter Witkin's photographs, for instance. Do you know Witkin's photographs? I mean, they are unbelievable, superb pictures, and they are were a massive influence, incredible kinds of images. So that kind of thing will come in as just every bit as much Goya's paintings, uh, Bosch, you know, that kind of stuff. That's all part of the texture of what's going on. I probably have as many art books and photography books as I do books with words in. <laughs> Did you see a lot of the early classic horror films? I'm thinking, you know, Karloff, Lugosi, the, the real classic well, era, James Whale. Not, not when I was a kid, but uh, because they were basically forbidden material. But recently, American film asked me to do like a top ten for them, and James Whale's Bride of Frankenstein is my oh. the 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 best of the best. Who could quarrel with that? It's just the best. Uh, but I'm also fond of a, a directors you don't see very much of over here. People like Dario Argento, for instance, who made a wonderful horror movie called Suspiria, which doesn't really mm -hmm. make any great sense, but is very good. Argento stuff is really stylish, really violent, and very very strange kind of surreal almost. It has a kind of gloss to it, which is surreal. It's like Brian De Palma with even less motivation. Something totally unrelated to this. Before we went on the air, we, we were just sitting here chatting, and you revealed a certain facet of your personality that, that really intrigued me. You started talking about the Ronettes. That whole aspect <sighs> of modern pop culture, how does that impact your work? It impacts it hugely on a superficial level. And in a book which is coming up, I hope it's going to impact on a, on a profound one, too, in the sense that the Ronettes make me happy, okay? Uh, that kind of music makes me happy. I am playing that kind of music all the time to myself. And if I'm not playing that, I'm playing Bernard Herrmann. I think probably my favorite album at the moment, you know, you go through moments when sure. you have to play a thing over and over again. My two favorite albums, I just got hold of uh, the soundtrack to Obsession, the De Palma picture, the Bernard Herrmann score for that. You grew up in Liverpool. You were, what, 11 or 12 years old at the rise of the Beatles. I guess that's right. I was born off Penny Lane, literally on the road off Penny Lane, and uh, I do remember very forcibly hordes of teenagers coming in and taking photographs of all the houses down, you know, when the song came out. That the Beatles thing has, has gone with me since. I mean, Linda McCartney took the the photograph on Weave World. Three out of four articles begin Paul McCartney lookalike Clive Barker. It's very interesting because Linda was asked to do this photograph by Collins, and nobody mentioned to her that this had been said, which was cool by me because I that was fine. So I went in and started the photo session, a long photo session, with a lot of photos to be taken. About two hours into it, she said, "You know, I just realized who you remind me of." I thought, here it comes. She said, you remind me of my 10-year-old son. We were talking earlier about your work as a playwright, but you never mentioned the themes of your plays or the titles of them or any details, unless that's a secret. Oh, no, no. We're looking at doing editions of those in the not-too-distant future. There's 11, I guess, 11 full-length plays. Many of the titles speak for themselves. Frankenstein in Love was a Gronkinial piece. 
always romantic, you know. Are you familiar with Tom Dish? Oh, sure. And, and his opera of Frankenstein? I know of it, though I've never heard it, or, or know, I know nothing about it, though I, I know it exists. All, all I know of it is he once did a reading for us of the final soliloquy of the monster, oh, which is wonderful, is it really? just wonderful. I believe that. No, I've never, uh, I've never, as I said, had any access to that material, though I'd be fascinated to hear what it was like. I did a play called History of the Devil, which is literally that. I did a play called Colossus about Goya, my favorite painter. I did a piece uh, called Subtle Bodies, which uh, is about a hotel which turns into a ship and then sinks. I did a play called Crazy Face about the great kind of semi-mythological fool Tilleulen Spiegel from Strauss. I did a play called Paradise Street set in my own town, Liverpool, and so on. And a play called Super Life of Cartoons. Well, Secret Life of Cartoons had a great life on the fringe in in in, in England and in Europe and at Edinburgh the festival, um, and then had a disastrous life in the West End when it became a legitimate production. <laughs> in part because I lost <coughs> control of it. I, I, maybe I'm coming with all these movies and all this stuff. Maybe I'm coming across like a control freak, but I I genuinely do think that sometimes. Things get lost. An essence gets lost, and you know some producers came in, they cast some stars, and the the thing was lost. But this play is is a nice notion. It's about a guy who gets thrown out of his his job as a as a as a animator at a studio, which is clearly kind of Warner Brothers, except that it's set in New York for plot reasons. And he's a kind of Chuck Jones kind of guy he's absolutely obsessed with this this stuff and he's obviously a genius his great creation is a character called roscoe rabbit to roscoe he has given all his best lines all his jokes all his taste in clothes and everything you know he's basically a hollow man because he lives utterly through these cartoons and he gets thrown out of his job and he gets back to his apartment to find that Roscoe Rabbit has also left his job um, and has preceded him back to the apartment. And he is so much sexier, so much more dapper, so much funnier than his creator that he's actually got to bed with his creator's wife. So Dick gets back to find uh, that, uh, that his wife is in an, an adulterous clinch with his rabbit. <laughs> the studio then sends out... A bisexual duck, a, a cat, a uh, selection of cartoon characters, a, a, a rabbit hunter to recapture the rabbit. And at the end of the play, we discover that in fact the entire studio from word one has been run by cartoons and is run by a little sort of Capone character who is simply referred to as the mouse. It's a weird piece of work, and it needed to stay weird. And the problem, the problem when you go into legitimate theatre in the West End, is it costs a lot of money to mount the thing, yes. and they they have to clean up your act because they're cleaning mm. it up for a tourist audience. You know, suddenly you find that you're losing control of the stuff you really loved, and a lot of the nice stuff goes, and it all becomes gets coarsened in a curious kind of way. It gets simplified. You know, suddenly it's suddenly it's vaudeville and it, it lost it i mean it lost it. the reviews were disastrous they deserved to be there it was a bad production maybe one time down the line i'll i'll, uh, I'll let ross go out again what is down the line for clive bark what's coming up my hero when i was a kid was cocteau i wanted to grow up to be sean cocteau was i saw a, a piece of uh testament of all when i was a little kid before i knew what 
the hell any of this stuff was and was thought it was just unbelievable as the bit where Cocteau gets the actually you remember Cocteau was in that movie gets the spear thrown through him by the horse-headed women remember that and the, the spear is pulled out real slow it's, uh, it's great it's a it's a moment it's a moment this is Norfan talking of this is Testament of Orfei which is a, a, a late Cocteau picture Cocteau was a painter and a writer and a movie maker and a playwright and what he was finally describing it seems to me was a single world was a single terrain, and he was describing it in various ways. It's a bit like he was a journalist who was going out there with a with a camera and a sketchbook and a notebook and a tape recorder, and he was saying, okay, here's the world, I'm going to take account of it, and sometimes you're going to want to take photographs, and sometimes you're going to want to do drawings, and sometimes you're going to want to write about it. But finally, the space between your ears, the terrain, the you know the the special country which is uniquely yours, and the special mm -hmm. country which is uniquely everybody's, uh, lends itself in various ways to different kinds of description. If We World eventually becomes a movie, we will lose an awful lot because it's a six hundred page book. We gain some things in turning the Hellbound Heart, the novella, into Hellraiser. One of the things we gained was the fact that people can jump. I mean, you know, when Christ falls out of the closet in Hellraiser, which he does, the audience jumps. I mean, every you know, the, the whole audience sort of lifts, sort of six inches off the seat. You can't do that in a book, really. So, the, you know, there are fun things you can do. And I would like, ideally, to continue to, to describe this terrain in as many ways as possible. The excitement being that it's all the same country. And that, going back to a much earlier part of our conversation, that's one of the reasons why I reject this genre breakdown. You know, I write fantasy, I write science fiction, I will be writing science fiction, I write for kids now, I write plays or whatever. Does it really need, it's, it's my imagination, it's your imagination, it's, you know, it's whatever you do is a product of you, it's a product of your imagination. That's what's important. What have you written for kids? I've got a book coming up which is being illustrated by a lady friend of mine, which I really like, which is about the creator deciding that he, the world should be boxed up and put away, and about a girl and her iguana who uh, managed to escape this fate with hilarious results. Uh, it's a very strange little book, and I don't know what the kids are going to make of it, but I'm having a good time. <laughs> Did Jack turn you on to Daniel Pinkwater yet? No. Pink, Daniel, Daniel Pinkwater. No. You've never read Daniel Pinkwater. I haven't, no. Who is... you like him. For kids, for adults? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's got one book called The Moose Pyre about a vampire moose. I love it already. Illustrated? Uh, yeah. Weave World. Yeah. Fantasy. Yeah. New direction of sorts. I guess uh, it kind of ties in with everything else. The imagery is, in many ways, very similar to, you other, to your other sure. imagery. Though it's obvious as a lighter touch, are you planning to move more toward a lighter touch from here on out? Or? Lighter in one in one sense because the, it's not as visceral, but in another sense, I think that when the the bad things happen to the characters in Weave World, they're very bad. They're very bad. Yeah. And I think, in part, because I hope that 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 the characters are more approachable than they've been in previous books. It may be that the harm that is done to them will be all the more significant. Harm which is healed for the first time in the books. Harm, the book moves towards moments of epiphany and optimism and confirmation, life confirmation, uh, which, I mean, it's an Eden book. 
finally. It's a, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's a book about our dreams of Eden, our hopes for Eden. I think it's the first really optimistic thing that I've done. You have to get through an awful lot of bad times to get to the good stuff, but you do get to the good stuff at the end, towards the end. I like that, but I also like the idea that I don't like the idea. I wish it wasn't this way, but it is this way. The fact is, it's a fight. It's always a battle. The battle is on. The battle continues. I don't want to write lies. I don't want to write uh, indecently optimistic work uh, that implies that somehow or other you push the right magic button and the heaven opens with, with rainbows. It doesn't. But I would like to, to trace a path for characters in the future which moved them towards a kind of understanding, going back to William Blake, that he would have understood about the world, which is that the miracles are just around the corner. Uh, and they are very personal, and they are very private, and they are very intimate, and they are very local. You know, the Hindus have 33 million gods. Gods of rocks, gods of roots, gods of certain trees, gods of certain, you know, leaves of grass. We have one, and I think that what Blake would have understood absolutely, and what I think fantasy fans and readers and writers understand, is the private and the personal and the intimate magic, which makes the vision of having 33 million gods perfectly plausible. That there is a thing haunting every corner and step and railing, and you know that as a kid. You are certain of that as a kid, and you lose that. It gets bullied out of you. You know, it gets blasted out of you by your education. You're told that there's this thing called reality. And then there's this other thing, which is the thing which is negligible, which is your fantasy life, mm -hmm. your, you know, the, the world of illusions, the world of dreams. You know, Paul says it once that when I was a child, I thought like a child. Now I'm a man. I have put away childish yes. things. I haven't put away childish things. Uh, Paul was wrong. I'm holding on. <laughs> and one of the childish things is to is to know, not think or believe, but to know that just behind the facade of solidity, there are things more potent and more persuasive than the solid. Things which have a an influence in our dream lives. Things which we sense when we are happy. The moments again of epiphany which come upon us because there's a certain smell in the air or because there's a certain light in the sky. When we when we know, when we absolutely know that the world means there's no harm, it's only other 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 human beings who do. The fact that maybe the system means there's no harm either. If we could just get onto the right ride, get to understand the way the moment works, things are cool, things are good. I want to touch that more and more and just have a little bit of slime edging up behind it. As of 2022, there have been 17 Clive Barker novels in all, five short story collections, 14 plays, and a variety of comic books and graphic novels, several screenplays, teleplays, and adaptations, three feature-length films he directed, and also books of his artwork. A new version of Hellraiser, based on his original screenplay, now streams on Hulu along with Books of Blood from 2020. Candyman from 2021 streams on Amazon Prime. In 2012, Clive Barker went into a coma following a disastrous visit with a dentist. Since that time, no new novels have been forthcoming 
though he is credited with involvement in a number of published works and film and television adaptations. From the interview, Dario Argento's horror films are all available on the Criterion app, where you can also find films by Jean Cocteau. After Clive began writing fiction, he stopped writing plays, so his final work for theater was written before the interview was recorded. Speaking of which, this interview was digitized and edited from a cassette recording in October 2022 and has not been heard in 35 years. A highly edited transcript, though, can be found in a book titled Macabre 2, Stephen King and Clive Barker, edited by James Van Hise, and it's been out of print for decades. My co-hosts for the interview were Richard A. Lupoff and Lawrence Davidson, and the interview was recorded in the KPFA studios September 1987 and digitized and edited in October 2022. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com, and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. 